Over the last several weeks, we've seen that John's gospel is an invitation to us. John's gospel is like you receiving a letter, a postcard in the mail, inviting you to someone's house. Right? I mean, think about if I emailed Susanna and said, Susanna, will you come and have dinner with Janelle and I and the kids? That's what John's gospel is. It's, a, it's an email to you. It's a letter to you. It is an invitation to each one of us to friendship with Jesus. He's inviting us into a personal relationship, a friendship of love. And we, we've seen in John's gospel that to respond to this, each of us has to respond personally. Faith has to be individual, to be real. And we've seen over the last several weeks that the way each one of us can respond to Jesus' invitation to become his friend is by turning toward him in trust, entrusting ourselves to him, to turn our attention toward him. And this is very difficult in our very busy lives. Some of us haven't thought about Jesus since last Sunday. The invitation is not to do that, but it's to, to find yourself in the dailiness and the darkness of your life, turning toward him, attending to him, paying attention to him, entrusting yourself to him. And if you would do this, He'll open his life up to you. He'll receive you. He'll invite you in. He'll, he'll, he'll allow you to discover little by little who he is. He'll allow you to grow little by little into an intimate, personal relationship with himself. Now, we got a wondrous glimpse of what this kind of relationship with Jesus looks like last week at the wedding party. We saw that the Jesus who's inviting us into a relationship, who's offering us friendship. We saw last week that Jesus is overflowing with abundance. He's full of goodness and kindness, not just in the abstract sense, but in the concrete details of our life. We saw last week that this worked out for one young man whose entire future was about to fall into shame and scandal because he misplanned for his wedding day. He didn't have enough wine for the wedding feast. And the sheer abundance of Jesus Christ solved that particular concrete problem in his life in an extravagant way. We get a glimpse last week that the Jesus who invites us, each one of us individually, into a real friendship, we saw that this Jesus is not an aesthetic calling us into the wilderness of lack. But he's overflowing 
with joy. We see him at this wedding party dancing and drinking and eating and laughing and joking. We see him push pause on the busyness of life in order to attend a party. This is the Jesus that is inviting each one of us into a relationship. Now there's a problem. The problem is the temptation to stay there. I mean, who wouldn't want to stay there? Who who hasn't been at one of those vacations or those parties in life where you lean back in the right moment with the right group of friends at the end of the just right day and you wish, you wish, you wish that this is where you could live every day of your life. Who wouldn't want to stay at a party with this bartender, right? Who wouldn't want to stay at a party with this person who delights in such ironic joking? Who wouldn't want to stay there? But we have to keep reading. Jesus doesn't stay there. He moves on. You see, one of the problems we face is the temptation to reduce Jesus to our favorite aspect. To the one that we jive with the best. And every generation has an aspect of Jesus that's particularly susceptible to distorting. Because there's more to Jesus than we see at the wedding party. We see that there is more to Jesus than the inner experience of a personal relationship. The church in the West has all too often, over the last several centuries, reduced Jesus to what I've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The one who invites us to an intimate, personal relationship. All too often here in the West, over the last several centuries, the evangelical church over the last century, the conservative Orthodox church, has accepted the Enlightenment's agenda that says... Religion is about a private experience. You and your creator experiencing some sort of existential cleansing and joy. Keep Jesus there. And the church has said to the enlightenment, yes, master. But Jesus doesn't stop there. That's not all there is to Jesus in John's gospel. It's a very important part of it. But there's more to Jesus than his invitation to you into an intimate relationship. And we get this in the second half of John chapter 2. In the second half of John chapter 2, we find Jesus leaving the private, by invitation only, wedding party and going to the big city of Jerusalem. He moves out of the private domain into the public. And we find Jesus is not only really good at the private stuff, but he's also got a public agenda that he invites you and me into. This is where we heard in, this is what we heard a few moments ago in our gospel reading. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Let's follow Jesus 
from the party to the city. And let's continue to behold him. Let's continue to give our attention to him. And let's see what we see. What is Jesus up to when he gets to the city? First of all, he's claiming to be king. He's shifting his kind of metaphors. If the metaphor that Jesus was offering to us in John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 was that he's a lover. He's the consummate lover. He's the bridegroom of extravagant generosity. The metaphor that he offers us in the last half of the chapter shifts from that private, intimate lover to a public king. Look at verse 18. He's um, gotten this whip, right? And he's driven out these money changers from the temple. We heard this read a few minutes ago. And the Jews' response is, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Why are you doing this? Why, why are you able to do this? What right do you have to do this? What, what is the reason that you can do what you just did? What gives you the right to do this? You see, when Jesus disrupts the business of the temple, everyone in that day knew that only the king had authority over the temple. Now, those of you who've grown up in church, you can do this. You can put two and two together and realize this. Who first planned for Israel to have a temple? King David. Who built the temple? King Solomon. Who cleansed the temple? King Hezekiah and King Josiah. And then who rebuilt the temple after it got torn down? King Zerubbabel and then King Herod. This is their story. So they're looking at Jesus after he moves with authority in the temple and they're saying, wait a minute. Who elected you president? Jesus is claiming to be king. He's doing what the king does. He's taking authority over the temple. Now there's more. Because in Israel, to be king wasn't what it always means in every culture and every time. They had several thousand years of history filling out what a king was for. And we saw this during Advent. During the month of December, we looked each week at kingly passages. Passages in the Bible that told us what the job of the king was. Because Advent is when the church gets ready to celebrate the arrival of the king. And I want to draw your attention, those of you who are with us during Advent, I want to remind you that we learned that Israel's king had a special job. To give protection, the protection of the crown to the poor, the refugee, the undocumented citizen, the alien, the widow, the helpless, the outcast. That was an explicit, fundamental job of the king. 
So I want to remind you of some passages we looked at. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 4. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts, bribes, tears it down. So here we see that a king's job is to make sure the land functions well in the domain of justice and judgment. And that bribery short circuits national justice. Proverbs 29 verse 14. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne is established forever. And those of you who have been in the church, you know that all through the Old Testament, God is promising a king will come whose throne will be established forever. So what does Jesus, who is king, have to do if he wants to have a forever throne? He has to faithfully bring justice for the poor. The Bible's clear on this issue. The authority of the king and the authority of all government, for that matter, resides in the practice of judgment. And so going back to John chapter 2, the church in the West over the last several hundred years has too often succumbed to Jesus the lover and ignored That Jesus the king doesn't just mean he's your personal king. It is a political claim about how society functions primarily with regard to the poor. When we claim Jesus is king, we are saying there is not a square inch of this society, this culture, this nation that is outside of his care. You get both of these in John 2. You get Jesus, the personal, intimate friend, inviting you into a relationship of abundance. But when you come in, he says, come on now. Let's go. I want you to follow me. I want you to see what I'm about to do. I want you to be not only with me at the wedding feast, but I want you to be with me when I'm acting like a king in the center of Israel. We in the West have too often limited Jesus only to the inner personal relationship. But here in John chapter 2, he is a king, and that means public justice. To see this, it helps to realize that the temple, you can't think of the temple in Jerusalem like churches today. You can't even think of it like the Vatican or some giant church like Westminster. The temple precinct in Jerusalem took up 25% of the square footage of the city. Jerusalem was not like Corinth, a city with a church on every corner. Jerusalem was a temple with a little city around it. And this was massive. There were a hundred places Jesus could have gone to disrupt the temple. There are many, many passageways into the temple, gates into the temple, courtyards in the temple. There's stuff going on everywhere. Don't think of the temple like a church. Think of the temple as the beating heart of the national life of Israel. Think of it as the White House 
the House of Representatives, the Senate, the Supreme Court, Wall Street, Rodeo Drive, and Harrisonburg all rolled into one. All in one. That's the temple. That's not Jerusalem. That's the temple. This was the beating heart of the economic life of Israel, of the, if you could call it the religious life, although they wouldn't have done it that way, of of the ritual life of Israel, of the sociological life of Israel. Every aspect of Israel flowed out from the temple. Now, the temple is corrupt. And it's been corrupt for several centuries by the time Jesus shows up on the scene. It's basically become a mafia center with a mafia-like loan system. Priests higher up the food chain were beginning to extort lower-level priests, soliciting bribes, neglecting tithes, and grossly overcharging the people of Israel for the religious services that did cost money that the people were supposed to pay for. And the problem was that when greed becomes systemic and it moves up the chain, food chain, it has especially dire consequences for those who are living at the bottom of the food chain. You see, the windfall of income that was coming into the temple coffers through illegal gain was being quickly turned around for punishingly high interest rate loans. The temple financiers were then foreclosing very quickly, very efficiently on very poor people's property. So the temple was increasing its land holdings, which meant more wealth for the priestly elite, and more wealth meant more high-interest loans, and more high-interest loans meant more foreclosures, and the cycle goes on and on, crushingly, for those at the bottom of the economic ladder. And it's interesting that it is that aspect of the temple where Jesus takes a stand. Because he could have gone to a lot of... That's not all that happened in the temple. But that's the part of the temple he went to to make his stand. So here is Jesus shining a light on the shadow side of the temple industry. Greed. So what we see when we follow Jesus from the wedding feast to the temple is not some random outburst of emotion. This is a well-planned act of someone who is claiming to be the rightful king. Because kingship is wrapped up in justice expressed primarily for those who because of social status are unable to secure for themselves a fair game. This is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Talking about the coming king. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor. The poor are going to get a fair shake. 
How can the poor stand up against a system? They can't. They have no recourse. This is Jesus fulfilling Amos chapter 5, verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters. What we are seeing is that the king has been triggered by indignation over socioeconomic injustices that are ruining the lives of the disempowered. So Jesus is claiming to be king. He's claiming to be the king who judges for the poor. And one more thing. He's he's not only claiming to be king. He's not only claiming to be the king who judges. He's also making the astonishing claim that he is the reality that the temple has been pointing to all along. Look, look with me if you have a Bible at John chapter 2, verse 18. So here's Jesus. He goes in. He disrupts the, um, the trade practices at the temple. And then the religious leaders say, wait, wait. What, uh, where's your authority coming from? Because only a king can do this. Now, the interesting thing is he doesn't in that moment say, well, I'm the king. No, he lets his action make the implicit claim that he's the king. But here he turns the subject... What sign do you show us for doing these things? He said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, Jesus is tapping into the long story of Israel. Israel has a long history of the temple getting destroyed and kings rebuilding it. They don't quibble with that. They quibble with the speed. Okay, you're claiming to be king. Kings rebuild, destroyed temples. But no king we've ever had has done it in three days. They were standing 46 years into a building project that was going to go another 36 years. And they said, three days? How is this even possible? And then it says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken for them. You see, we have to be careful here, because we are children of Nietzsche and Descartes and all manner of views that came out of the Enlightenment that is prejudice against institutions and ritual. And that's come into the life of the church. And what the church here in the West has done is it's taken the prejudices of the Enlightenment, And it's turned those prejudices into a prejudice against the Old Testament. So the evangelical church in America has made a habit out of treating Judaism as the foil. And Christianity as the real thing. Judaism is ritual and institution. And Christianity is personal relationship without ritual. And so when you come to this passage with that kind of false prejudice, you see Jesus disrupting trade in the temple, and you extrapolate to Jesus saying temple is bad. Religion is bad. Ritual is the opposite of relationship. Well, whoever says that ritual is the opposite of relationship hasn't been married for very long. Because as the years go by, people who are married realize that ritual enters the most intimate parts of the relationship. 
Ritual versus relationship? This is a false dichotomy. Religion versus Christianity? This is a false dichotomy. The Bible itself says true religion is blah, 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 blah. The Bible doesn't demonize religion. It demonizes religion that's twisted. The Bible doesn't demonize ritual. It, 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 it pushes against ritual that's become hollow. Here is Jesus not saying temple bad. Here is Jesus saying temple has been fulfilled. You see, the temple... Not only was it the beating heart of the life of Israel, I left out the most important thing. The temple was the place on earth where heaven and earth met. Israel had been taught from the beginning that the temple was the place where God dwelled. That doesn't mean that God was restricted to the temple. Just like you could call your house your dwelling place, that doesn't mean you only are there. I mean, you still have a movement out into the world. Israel never for one moment thought God dwells in the temple means God's only there. Israel was taught by God from the beginning that that the temple was the place where heaven and earth, these two dimensions of the same reality, overlapped, and interlocked most precisely at the temple. That when you went to the temple, you could draw down on the life of heaven. And what was the life of heaven? Extravagant grace, forgiveness, kindness, love. It's at the temple that you went and you, and you entered into that domain where God forgives sin. Where, where he loves us unconditionally. And, and you could go there... And through rituals, you could have your sins forgiven. In other words, heaven could wash over earth and cleanse it. The temple was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, the temple was not bad, it was a sign. It was like a finger pointing. And he's saying to Israel... You're like a dog that when the master points, the dog stares at the finger. And Jesus is saying, the reality the temple's been pointing at is here. So you need to look at what the temple's been pointing at. Everything you've been learning from the temple, that's me. I'm the temple. I am the location of God's presence on earth. I'm the place of extravagance. I'm the place where you find grace and mercy. In fact, go back if you have your Bible and look at chapter 1. A sentence that I skipped over. When we were going through this a few weeks ago, John chapter 1 verse 51 I'm sorry, verse 51, yeah. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see, this is plural, by the way, you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the sun. 
Now, some of you have been reading the Bible a long time. You know what that's a reference to. That's a reference to Jacob running away from home because for the last time he had messed messed with his older brother. He had stolen his blessing. He had stolen his birthright. And his brother was mad, and he was going to kill him. And so Jacob went on the run. And he's, and he's got nothing. Zippo. Other than some, some promises that he hopes to cash in one day. And he's running and he's all alone. And he's tired. And he falls asleep. And he has a dream vision. And in this dream vision, he sees a ladder from earth up to heaven. And angels ascending and descending on the ladder. Now, he, in this worldview... They didn't think of heaven as a place far off. They thought of heaven as another dimension, as God's dimension. And so he sees this ladder between God's dimension and our dimension, and it's the way you can traffic between the two. And he wakes up, and he says, holy cow. That's a loose translation. He says, holy cow, this is the house of God. So he names that place Bethel, Beth, house, El, God, Bethel, and here Jesus says to his followers, you've been impressed by a few little miracles I've done. You don't know the half of it. I'm the latter. I am the way you can access the life of God, the dimension of God. That's me. So then when he says that, and the next thing that happens is he goes to a party, and at that party, life starts flowing, problems start getting solved, shame gets taken away. That's the life of heaven intersecting with earth, and and that, that love and that grace and that abundance breaking out. So when we get to the temple, we see once again heaven breaking out on earth. By securing justice for the poor. He's saying, look, the temple's been pointing to me all along. And you know what happens around me? Poor people get invited to parties. And those of you who've read the Gospels, you know this is all over the Gospels. Poor people get access to the life of heaven. Israel had sealed off the life of access, the, the, the access of heaven to the poor. Because they had, through all these bribes and all this system, they had blocked them out. And here was Jesus saying, remove that barrier. The poor can have access to God. Here was Jesus saying, I am the walking temple. Now, Madeline read to us a change in the scripture passage. She read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you, you here is plural, probably if you're looking in your Bible, many of your Bibles will have a footnote. It's one of the deceptions of the English language, right? Our word you 
Um, only context tells you if you're talking about plural. Now, in the South, we fix that, right? <laughs> Y'all. But the ESV hasn't yet reached that stage of the Enlightenment we call the South. Do you, plural, y'all, not know that you all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So let me try to bring all of these streams together. The church is the temple of God. What does that mean? Well, let's just go backwards. It means it's the place where heaven and earth meet. It means that it's the place where we encounter the presence of God. It means it is the, the place where God's spirit, like positive nuclear energy, is pulsating, healing, caring. Now, the problem with what I just said is that a lot of us tend to think of the word church as a building. But I'm not using it in that way. The church is you, the people. You are the church. The people who have turned their lives in trust toward King Jesus. The people who have opened their hearts to Jesus as the King, as their lover. The Spirit of God flows into them and fills them and together they make the church. The church is an irreducible complexity. You by yourself, not so much the church. That would be sort of like saying your finger chopped off and over there is you. No, it takes all of the members of your body together to make you. By yourself. You're just a nose. You're just a finger. Some of you are, I don't know, kneecaps. Others of you are, I don't know, shin bones. None of us by ourselves. It's the church. You, we as a group are the church. We as a group are the place where God's presence dwells. Now, again, that doesn't mean it's only there, Right? Ed and Jenny dwell in their home. That's their dwelling place. Doesn't mean they're only there. God God covers the earth. But he dwells in the church. Why? For the life of the world. Not so that we can all sit around singing Kumbaya. But for the life of the world. You see, God dwells in the church and we get to experience him as lover. But... When we gather on Sundays, when we gather like this, we're gathering around Jesus to adore him, to hear his word. Because King Jesus governs his church through his word. And when churches lose the word, they lose the governing authority of King Jesus. That's why scripture read and preached is is so important to what we do. We gather here to adore him. But when we do, every Sunday, you know what he does with us? He does the same thing he did with the disciples at the party. They were adoring him. Holy cow, did you see what he just did? He turned that water into wine. This is amazing. We get to be a part of this. And then what does he say to them? Come on. Come on, we've got work to do. There are broken people in this community. 
There are poor who are being crushed by systems. You see, Christianity, biblical Christianity, holds together the personal relationship and the social work. It's the journey inward to know that Jesus loves you and invites you into a relationship, but he always then leads you on a journey outward too. The church has to be politically involved. This is what we saw, those of you who are here, on Christmas Eve. We saw that there's more talk about the census in Luke's account of the birth of Jesus than there is about the birth of Jesus. That always in the Bible, it's pushing, pushing, pushing that we have to be concerned about life as it's lived in the cities that we live in. We don't get to just have a private relationship with Jesus because we are having a relationship with a Jesus who's on the move. He's walking out into the world. He's going to the places where the most vulnerable are being crushed. And so we are the temple. What does that mean? That means that we've got to make sure we don't fall under the same judgment that Israel's temple fell under. That we've got to keep our job right. We've got to always remember what it is. We exist for the good of our society. We exist for not only to tell people that they can know King Jesus, but we have to pay attention to the entire civic life of the communities that we live in. And we have to find the tables that need to be turned up. And if we don't, we will face judgment. We too will experience the judgment side of the king. This is why we have this remarkable stained glass window in our church. The Holy Spirit over the whole city, over the whole area. Jesus is for us personally, but he's also calling us to move out into our jobs and to real and to figure out how our job connects up with his kingdom purposes. But not only is Jesus calling us into a personal relationship and a vocational engagement, he's also telling us that we live in cities. And cities are made of systems. And if you only focus on your relationship and only focus on your job, you can miss there are systems that are crushing people. And the temple is here for that. The church is here for that. You're the church. You're the temple. We have to do our job. What a remarkable image. The church has always done this. The church invented public education. The church invented hospitals. Do you know this? See, we've got to remember that justice and hospitality is the public side of love. And you can claim love all day long, but if it's not expressing itself in laboring for justice and acts of hospitality, you've just turned it into a little hallmark banner on your wall, and you're a hypocrite. The public face of love is justice and hospitality. And what happens when churches know this? Cities have a chance. To inch toward flourishing. Let's pray.